Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Well, good morning. Uh, if you haven't been with us the past few weeks, this might be a little shocking. You might have thought, you know, I went on vacation, I come back, and my church is handing out popcorn, and there are animals on the stage. Never doing that again. Um, well, as we mentioned in the video, yeah, this week is our vacation Bible school, and we're doing Roar. And so to coincide with that, we are in a sermon series called Salt, Light, Camera Action. And we're looking at the Lion King. We're trying to practice how to engage with our culture in order to communicate the gospel and to teach biblical truths. So we saw a clip there. Uh, I think it's a pretty good scene. And so where we are in the story is Simba's father, Mufasa, is dead. And Simba holds himself responsible for his death. So he runs away, and he's been living many years in, in shame and guilt. And now the spirit of his father speaks to him. And what does he say? He says, you have forgotten me. You have forgotten who you are, and so forgotten me. See, Simba's identity is connected to his father. His father was a king, which means that Simba's a king. His father was a lion, which means that Simba is a lion. But Simba has not been living like a king. No, he's been embracing the Akuna Matata lifestyle, right? No worries and no responsibilities, no honor, no duty. And that's not a king. He's also not really living like a lion either. You know what he's doing? He's eating bugs. That's how he's living. He's living off of bugs. That's not really fitting for a lion. And so the baboon Rafiki asks him a question. Who are you? It's a good question. I think it's an important one for us to answer because who we are is connected to our father. And so we're going to look at that, and we're going to start at the very beginning in Genesis. This is what it says, Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And this is how it happens. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And Psalm says this, Psalm 139, 13, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So the creation process continues. So if you're answering the question from a biblical perspective, from a Christian perspective, who are you? The first thing is, you are a created being. You are intended. You are designed. You are the product of a mind. You have a creator. And as the creator, he is sort of the father of all mankind. In fact, he calls himself father. That sounds pretty good to me. Uh, But there are a lot of people who really hate this idea. Because if you're a creation, then you have a creator. And if there's a creator, well, then he has power over you. If there's a creator, he has authority over you. If there's a creator, he has a say in his creation. 
Well, that's sort of a distasteful notion. See, we want to be the masters of our own lives. We want to live the way that we want to live, and we really don't want to answer to anybody, and so we flee from our Creator. We flee from our Maker. We flee from our Father. Well, Jesus tells us another story about somebody who fled from his father. It's a pretty familiar story. You've probably heard it. We'll hear it again. Luke chapter 15. It's the prodigal son. He says this, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. His son is basically telling his father to drop dead. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything didn't really work out the way he thought, did it? Oh, he wanted to be emancipated from his father. He wanted to be liberated from his father, free to live the way he wanted to live, to, you know, sort of embrace the akuna matata lifestyle. And he winds up destitute and wanting to eat pig food. I think that's a good picture for us. See, we want to be emancipated from God. We want to be liberated from our maker. We want to be truly free from his authority and his rule. We, We think that's empowering. And it does nothing but diminish us. See, if there is no creator, then you're not a creation. And the universe itself is just a cosmic accident from some rendition of multiverse and The origin of life itself is just a fluke of chemistry. And everything that follows from it is a purely naturalistic process, completely unguided, and random mutation coupled with natural selection, without purpose, without design. We try to mask that. We'll use euphemisms and anthropomorphisms. We'll say things like Mother Nature. But if there is no creator, there's no mother. There's no mind behind it. Nothing is being orchestrated. No, you are a big-brained mammal. You are not intended. You are not designed. And everything that we think and everything that we say and everything that we do in this world ultimately doesn't matter. Nothing we do has any sort of lasting significance. People will try to get past that and say, yeah, okay, well, I don't endure, sure. There's no afterlife, there's no God. But, you know, I live on in the hearts and the minds of people who remember me. Yeah, until all the people who remember you are dead, which happens quicker than you think. You know, I knew my grandparents. I didn't really know my great-grandparents. I heard some stories, some tidbits here or there. But I I don't know anything about my great-great-grandparents. Nothing. I couldn't tell you their names or where they lived or a single thing that they did. I could maybe look it up, you know, Ancestry.com or ask around, ask my relatives if I care to. But that's the other thing. I don't really care. And I'm family. If I don't care, nobody cares. (laughs) They are forgotten. And I'm going to be forgotten, and you're going to be forgotten, 
and probably quicker than you think. Ecclesiastes, go ahead if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to be there for a little bit. Um, Ecclesiastes is really interesting. It's written from a perspective that's sort of naturalistic. The verbiage it uses is under the sun, sort of looking at the world as a closed system, sort of separate from God. And it says this, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 11. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Yeah. You know, our best case scenario is that we become some sort of historically significant figure. We remember that, right? We remember people like uh, Abraham Lincoln. We remember Hitler, too. But you just got to be historically significant, and you'll be remembered. That's the key. Eh, for a little while longer. But you know what our big brains have also discovered? Uh, our universe is essentially dying. The sun is burning out. It's losing mass. And one day it will burn out completely. And every star in our universe is burning out. The second law of thermodynamics is the law of decay. See, our universe is like it's been wound up and it's slowly winding down. Energy is being released. And so there are different kind of theories about how exactly this is all going to end, but they all share one crucial uh, detail, which is this. At some point, our universe will be unable to support any life anywhere. No one will be around to remember you. Nothing will endure. Not your memories, not our history, not our art, not our music, not our architecture, nothing that we think is important will last. Nothing that we think should last will last. Okay, so nothing will last, but we can still enjoy the ride. And that's really what life becomes down to, chiefly. That's the meaning of it. Just live a full life. So at the end of your life, you can say, you know, I had a good time. It's the best we can probably do sort of live for pleasure. We embrace maybe the akuna matata lifestyle, the wild living. That sounds like fun. That sounds like pleasure. Well, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, he tries that. This is what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs so water grows of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also own more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. 
chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So he tries to dedicate himself to pleasure. He's got tons of money. He's incredibly wealthy. He denies himself nothing. He's got wine. He's got a harem even. And it's just sort of empty. Because it doesn't mean anything. And that's really what we find in the world too. All these people who are sort of high status, where the world is their oyster, well, they're often the same people who are struggling with depression and suicide. You know, the World Health Organization found, uh, they did a study and it saw that the wealthier nations are more likely to struggle with depression than the poorer ones. So when you get to a point where you can start to really live for pleasure, you often find it's just sort of empty. And then what's the point of life? You know, there's an interesting thought experiment that was um, really championed by a man named Robert Nozick. It's called the Experience Machine. And he wants you to imagine that there's a machine that you can be hooked up to and it gives you realistic experiences and they're all just pleasurable. So there's one after the other. And you can be hooked up to this from now to the day you die. And the question is, would you do that? Would you hook up to the machine? Would you opt into that or not? And what's interesting is, overwhelmingly, people say no. And why, though? I mean, we're just here to enjoy the ride. This is real pleasure. Well, it's because it's not real. It's not meaningful. It doesn't, it's not connected to anything that matters. And that's sort of what the author of Ecclesiastes is dealing with here. He's finding that pleasure might be pleasure, but it becomes empty if it's not connected to something that matters. But how do you get to anything that matters in a meaningless universe? Well, he tries a couple things, right? He's going to say, okay, more meaningful pleasures. Let's go with work. Work can be pleasurable. It can also have a sense, though, it's more fulfilling. It's purposeful, like we're accomplishing something. Well, that actually falls flat. He says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 17. So I hated life. He is not enjoying the ride. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me, all of it is meaningless. Chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. You know, see, work can be pleasurable. It can also be miserable. Sometimes we're just working for the weekend. And we feel like it accomplishes something, but what does it really actually accomplish? You can amass wealth, but you can't take it with you. You can do projects, build things, and that doesn't endure. You know, Ben Folds has a song called Fred Jones Part Two, and it's about a man at the end of his career, and it says, 25 years he worked at the paper. A man's here to take him downstairs. There were no parties. There were no songs. 
because today's just a day like the day that he started and no one is left here who knows his first name and life barrels on like a runaway train where the passengers change they don't change anything you get off someone else can get on and I'm sorry Mr. Jones it's time so work it's not really enough to give us meaningful pleasure what else we got relationships that seems like a promising one relationships I mean, that gives us tremendous pleasure and, and it can really feel fulfilling like it's purpose in a purposeless world I think that does resonate because it's it's closer to the truth it's not quite there so the thing about relationships yeah they, they, they can bring you pleasure they can also bring you misery it's just as likely and you think about the greatest pain and misery we experience so often it is in relationships and even the best relationships actually end horribly uh, the comedian Louis C.K., he said something interesting. He said this, It's hard to really, like, look at somebody and go, Hey, maybe something nice will happen. I know too much about life to have any optimism, because I know even if it's nice, it's going to lead to bad. I know that if you smile at somebody and they smile back, you just decided that something bad is going to happen. You might have a nice couple of dates, but then she'll stop calling you back and you'll feel bad. Or you'll go out for a long time and then she'll dump you. Or you'll get married and it won't work out. And you'll get divorced and split your friends and money and that's horrible. Or, or you'll meet the perfect person who you love infinitely and you even argue well and, and you grow together and you have children and then you get old together and she's going to die. That's the best case scenario. The best case scenario is that you're going to lose your best friend and then just walk home from the grocery store with heavy bags every day and wait for your turn to be nothing also. Yeah, if there is no creator, then all of our relationships just sort of end in sadness. Do you feel empowered yet? <laughs> you know, I think it gets worse. See, if you're not a created being, then I think you lose even yourself. See, we're really defined by our choices. Character is defined by choice. But if there is no creator, then all we are are just physical beings. We're just material entities, and matter does not make choices. The natural world is just cause and effect. In fact, most uh, atheist philosophers argue that things like free will are illusory. Sam Harris, maybe you've heard of him, in his last book on free will argues that, that free will is not really real. And if you take the worldview of atheism seriously, if you take the worldview of naturalism seriously, it's really hard to avoid that. Uh, the chemist J.B.S. Haldon in his essays of Possible World said something that always struck me. He said, if all of my mental processes are wholly the result of the motion of atoms in my brain, then I have no reason to suppose that they are true. They may be sound chemically, but that does not make them sound logically. And hence, I have no reason to suppose that my brain is composed of atoms. Yeah, I think that's right. 
See, if we're all brain and not mind, if we're all body and not soul, if we're not dualist like Descartes argued, well, then everything is just physical. And so Sam Harris is an atheist because of electrochemical reaction in the brain. And I'm a theist because of electrochemical reaction in the brain. And because it's physical, it could be altered. So all you have to do is just change the chemistry in just the right way, alter the matter in just the right way, and Sam Harris would be a theist and I would be an atheist. But if that's true, then none of our beliefs are based on logic or reason. No, logic is immaterial. It's non-physical. It has no physical properties. It exists only in a mind. And naturalism tells us we don't have minds, we have brains. It is a physical organ subject to only naturalistic processes of cause and effect. So we don't have logic, that's cause and effect. We don't have free will, that's cause and effect. We also don't have morality. Morality requires choice. It requires free will. You can't be morally culpable for something you didn't have a choice in, and we don't blame people for that either. You'd be no more guilty of, of doing something immoral than of being colorblind. Moral agents require agency. So look where we are now. We wanted emancipation, we wanted to be free from God, and we lost free will itself. Look at what we've been reduced to. We don't have logic, we don't have morality, we don't have free will. All of our relationships end horribly. Our work is futile. We're just big-brained apes you know, that are not intended in a meaningless world, in you know, a tiny speck of a planet, and nothing's going to endure. When we are made from dust and we separate ourselves from God, that's really all we become. Let's go back to Genesis. So mankind sins, mankind falls, he separates us, creates a break. And this is what God says to us after man has fallen. He says this, chapter 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. See, apart from God, we become nothing but dust. When we deny our Father, when we don't remember Him, when we forget Him, it does nothing but diminish us. We become lions eating bugs. We become servants wanting to stuff our face with pig food. And that's not where the story ends, though. Let's go back to that. Luke chapter 15. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
So they began to celebrate. Yeah, when we turn back to our Father in repentance, when we remember Him, when we acknowledge Him, everything is restored to us. No, we're creations again. We are made by a spirit, and so we are spiritual too. So we're mind and brain, so we're body and soul, and immaterial realities are back for us. So we have free will, so we have morality, so we have logic, and we are intended, and we are designed, and we are loved in a meaningful universe in everything that we say and everything that we do in all of our relationships now have eternal significance. You know, all these uh, Lion King illustrations that we're going to be doing, they're not perfect. And even the story that Jesus tells here, it's not the perfect illustrations. why he tells more than one. See, the father in this story is passive. He's just waiting for his son. We have other pictures of God where he is actively pursuing us. We have things like Hosea going after his faithless bride. And in fact, uh, Francis Thompson wrote a really interesting poem called The Hound of Heaven. It really captures well sort of the relentless pursuit of God. And Jesus comes to earth, right, actively pursuing us. We sinned. We separated ourselves from God. We reduced ourselves to dust. And Jesus goes after us. He dies on the cross. He removes the sin from us. And he brings back to life the dust. But he does something more than that too. He doesn't just bring the dust back to life. No, he makes it a son or a daughter. John says this. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And Romans says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, or we cling to the dust and find contentment in eating bugs when God offers us sonship. So Ralfiki asked Simba that question, who are you? And Simba doesn't have an answer. So he says, I know who you are. You're Mufasa's boy. In this story that Jesus tells, it said when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, you know, I think that's the same moment when he remembered who he was, that he was the son of his father. And when he turned back into repentance, he found himself again. So we can be like Simba. We can be far from our home. We can be imprisoned by our guilt and our shame and we can be mired in our sin and our failures and God asks us a question who are you? I know who you are you're my son you're my daughter you're a co-heir of Christ you're a daughter of the king you're Yahweh's boy. Remember who you are. Let's pray. 
Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.